You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Carrigan Thompson, and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS, and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. So we'll go straight into it. Chris, you're first up on my list if you want to do a nice introduction to who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Chris Hannah Marsden. I work in Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. I've um, been there for 14 years now. Um, current role is manager of BI Systems Architecture and Performance. I work within the BI department there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Perfect, thank you so much. Uh, Michael? Uh, hi, I'm uh, Mike Life. I'm the Associate Director of Performance and Business Intelligence from Southport and Ormskirk Trust. Uh, I've been in the organisation for about 10 years, um, 13, 14 years NHS service in total. Perfect, thank you so much. And Jason? I'm a digital consultant and I'm working with uh, a couple of trusts in Cheshire and Merseyside on uh, their digital strategies and EPR programme approach. And um, I, I stopped counting a long time ago, Michael, but I think I'm up to about 35 years in and out of the NHS. So it's been a long time. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it's lovely to have you all here and thank you again for taking the time um, tonight. So we'll we'll jump straight in, um, and Jason, we'll come back to you with your your first question. So you wanted to speak more about um, the next generation of EPR. So you want to know where's that heading, and what have we learned from deployment so far, and how this is going to help us transform. So do you want to just go into it a little bit more, and your thoughts and everything with that? Yeah. So just thinking about um, obviously over the last five to ten years. Uh, we've had a lot of developments around uh, EPRs and elements of EPRs being deployed with clinical noting, order comms, e-prescribing. Um, so lots of uh, good developments going on and looking at um, uh, some some organisations that need to catch up with that. So what lessons are we are we sharing? Uh, but also then looking forward to uh, what's the the next generation of uh, EPR tools we need to be looking at. Um, areas like clinical decision support, that seems to be high on the, the national agenda. So as we've got these systems and we've got the data, um, how are we supporting clinicians on the front line? And then I'm sure uh, uh, Michael will come back on the sort of the broader performance and, and BI agenda as well. Um, uh, and I know Trish isn't with us, but uh, would have been Interesting with Trish talking about the engagement. So what have we learned from uh, how to engage with clinical and operational colleagues for uh, successful digital deployments? Um, looking at clinical safety, you know, quite rightly, that's become a, a major part of the, the agenda in front and centre. Everything we do should be should be safe and en enhancing service delivery and not putting things at risk. Um, thinking about the benefits, so where are we going? Always looking for efficiencies. Um, the changes to care models, so very much more now um, shared care models, um, say across an ICS or a place, so different emphasis. I think there's been a lot of work within individual organisations. Um, now we need to be sharing data. 
Um, and uh, another key word that seems to have cropped up uh, recently is convergence. So how do the individual provider organisations work together to uh, perhaps share EPRs or share EPR approaches? Um, so I'm sure that will be on our minds and will come up in uh, Cheshire and Merseyside uh, over the next few months as we plan out uh, for the ICS where everybody's going to go with their EPRs. Perfect. Does anyone want to add to anything to do with that? Yeah, I think I think for, from a business intelligence point of view, um, one thing that's so vital with with any EPR is is the is the data quality, um, and you know it's only as good as the information being put onto an, uh, the front end, you know, by the um, sort of the nurses and the uh, clinicians at that side because at the end of the day it's you know it's where all the information flows to us and you know we're the ones who have to do what we need to do with it but the the changes that are being made every year with EPRs they're, they're really coming on leaps and bounds and it's great it's just making sure that um, things are getting recorded at the front end so that we can get the full benefit of the system. Perfect over to you Jason. Yeah I, I think you're absolutely right there Michael, I'm thinking uh, where I was talking about the engagement, you know, it's how we engage with the users. So the systems are are working for them rather than them working for the system. So then there's uh, yeah more of an inclination to get the data right because it's embedded in uh, the clinical and operational processes. So um, I think again, historically, we've been driven a lot by national data requirements. Um, uh, and using language that perhaps isn't natural to the, the people we're then asking to, to enter data. Um, so getting that uh, engagement with users and the co-design of the systems and really making the systems work for the users uh, drives better data quality. Perfect. And, and anything else on that point at all from anybody? Yeah, Chris? So just to agree with what both of you just said there, you know, from my own experience, I think the engagement really is key. And once you get people kind of on board with what you're doing and why you're doing it and how it benefits them, then that really does kind of get a better use of, of the system because we have generally rolled things out, as you said, Jason, around national data sets and what we need to deliver from the systems and using that word and stuff doesn't really helps anybody in the clinical kind of sense why they need it and what benefits it'll be to them but I think sometimes even getting the person who is the toughest critic of the system on board and engaging with them can be a really big driver towards getting that kind of rollout successfully um, and they then can become one of your biggest supporters who kind of publish that how you know what it can bring to, to them and those who work with them so yeah I fully agree with what you've just said there it's really really interesting to hear you say. Perfect Michael. Yeah, I think what one of the the key things around engagement is is that is that feedback loop to to the people at the front end. It's it's being able for them to see the benefits of getting data right in you know as timely manner as 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 you can um, in sort of near real time. And I think that's where the use of sort of dashboards and stuff like that are really effective because they can see then that what they're putting in, um, you know goes through the system and comes back for them to make use of it. I think when there's that sort of separation between the system and the data, they don't really have a comprehension of, of what they're doing. They, you know, they're not too bothered about making mistakes or filling it in in a timely manner because it goes 
because I don't have anything to do with it again. Whereas if it's feeding them, there's that immediate feedback loop where they've got, you know, the Ward dashboards right in front of them at the desks and stuff like that. Um, they can really see the benefits of getting the data right and getting it on in a timely manner as well and how it affects sort of the colleagues as well. It's, you know, if it's just you know, it doesn't really matter, but when it's when there's a bed manager overseeing several wards, um, they really need to be able to, to for them to to see the benefit of them from a higher perspective, not just their own sort of narrow view of what's going on in front of them. Amazing. And Jason, is there anything else you wanted to add from? I know obviously that whole idea and conversation came from you. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Yeah. Uh, well, I think just thinking about. Um, uh, the national agenda and what good looks like. I think as more of that emerges and, and drives the ICS strategy and down to uh, provider and place level, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and then, uh, you know, at the more technically advanced and uh, there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence. I think there's some mixed views on that. I think some people uh, see it really as the way forward. I think other, there are lots of doubters about it as well. I think perhaps need to see the real world uh, applications for that, uh, which we have seen some of those elements, I think, in digital radiology. And uh, I think as pathology progresses down that line, we'll, we'll see it in the pathology space as well. Um, and then we're into uh, uh, sort of the, the monitoring devices, so information being automatically recorded and being logged into the EPRs, uh, which sort of loops back around to uh, AI, because as we get all this information, that's great, but somebody's got to do something with it to, to make it useful. Um, and there's that, I, taking Michael's part, I think there's so much we can do on um, presenting the information, analysing it, and Chris with the, the dashboards, etc. But uh, um, at some point we, we're going to, too much information to to be able to to go away and think about everything we need to be reporting so uh, perhaps that's where ai has a, a role in the future perfect thanks so much i think i will lead um nicely on it will come to to your question next chris um so you wanted to discuss um how do you think the way in which data is used in the nhs over the past few years has been transformed um, so if you just want to open with your thoughts and, and then we can go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's interesting from what you've just said, Jason, really, because um, it does kind of flow on. So when I first started in the NHS as an information analyst, um, a lot of the work that was done was done very manually. It was done um, in retrospect, like we'd look back at the previous month, previous quarter, it would probably take two, three people to pull together a single report um, in Excel or potentially in Access. Um, and we would be using that to try and kind of make decisions. And whilst there was definitely benefits to that way of working, and it was probably the only way to be able to work at that time, um, it really didn't give a huge amount of insight. And there was a lot of information that just wasn't kind of being used for anything. Um, I think within the first couple of years that I worked, I was quite lucky to be involved in a data warehouse project and I think we, as far as I'm aware, were fairly early in, in kind of doing this. I think that that kind of sparked something almost like a kind of new age with digital um, and, and data um, for that period in time anyway. So when that project started, 
Um, and then over the next coming years, I noticed, you know, as I was networking with others in the NHS, that more and more trusts were beginning to build their own data warehouses and to, to platform the data and pull in data from different systems. Data and the way it was used and consumed, I think, really changed within the NHS as a whole. Um, it stopped being so retrospective. It started to be a lot more current. People were consuming things on a daily basis. They had reports that they could look at. And as Jason rightly said, what that did then was drive up the need for the data. The, the people that use it had an expectation that they could use this. Their kind of thirst for knowledge of the data they had got a lot more um, intense and they, they wanted to know more than they'd ever wanted to know before. So then things like you know triangulation of data started to really come into play. Um, and I think fairly early on in my career anyway, I don't think that there's a huge investment in digital and, and kind of that kind of BI kind of thing. But as kind of data warehouse and things rolled out and became more commonplace, not only did you see the shift in the way kind of data was used to consume, but you started to see a shift in the kind of roles within teams like informatics and performance where you were starting to see, you know, um, data warehousing becoming a, a, a job role that you need and report developers and things like that. Skills like SQL and um, SSIS, SSIS, things like that started to become a lot more common instead of just your standard kind of office skills. Um, and things really did take a, a shift at that point. Um, I think that probably now we're starting to see a similar shift, or at least that's my perspective anyway. We've got to a point, I'd say, where potentially there's a lot of organisations because of the NHS long term plan and its kinds of drive for digital transformation and, and what it wants to see in the next 10 years, starting to look at things like, you know, cloud based um, infrastructures, um, use of things like um, Azure Data Factory and Synapse and stuff like that. Um, and within that, the tools that it gives us that do allow us to use things like machine learning and artificial intelligence, because again, as, as Jason said, the, the volume of data that we're getting from all of our systems now, it's almost overwhelming. So whilst there's a huge amount of data, more than we've ever had available for us um, to do some really innovative things with the, the ability to do that in the traditional ways that we, we're currently used to is just kind of too much now. So we're looking towards that new technology um, to try and kind of do more with it and to provide more insight to make better decisions, more intelligent decisions going forward. And I think for the first time in a long time, there's a much more of a parity that I'm starting to see between the NHS and some of the private sector kind of organisations. Because I think when I first started naively, my my thought was there'll be one system that everybody uses and there'll be, um, you know, everything will talk to each other and it'll be a lot like, you know, you, you used to back then just check your bank account to see how much money you had straight away. That that kind of thing, that kind of instantaneous consumption of data, and that just wasn't the case back then, but it's much more the case now. Um, so I'm quite excited to see where things are going to go next. I think that there's a lot of exciting things for us to start to use. Um, still a lot of things that are done in strange ways like a lot of national data sets still submitted as excel files and access databases and i get that that's because we've got to kind of um make sure that everybody you know even the the the, the smallest trust that doesn't have a huge kind of team have got to be able to do it but still some blockers i think towards us getting like completely into the whole future mindset of, of everything but i think we're, we're really starting to get there now and it is quite an exciting time for us 
Uh, yeah, I think just to, you know, reiterate what Chris has said and of my own experience, when I started in the NHS, um, I was fortunate enough to have done sort of um, SQL at university, so I didn't know about it, but I was amazed that everything was still done in Excel and, you know, there was big teams of people who were churning through spreadsheets um, every month. Uh, but there'd be like one person who was sort of the data warehouse guy um, that sort of, uh, you know, did a separate job. And and over the years, uh, the transition away from that sort of manual sort of data manipulation to doing everything through the data warehouses um, has really been quick. And um, as a manager, I've had to sort of purposefully move sort of funding around within the team to have less of the analysts and more of the data warehouse people to grow that as we as we do process more and more data. Um, and I think one of the things that we, we have recognised is that um, from a, an information point of view, um, the change in sort of technologies that's happened over the last 10 years is you know, a clinical comparison of the difference between paediatrics and geriatrics. It's a very different systems that you're working with today that they were, they were doing the same job with 10 years ago. Um, and as you know, the technologies change, as Chris said, the volume of data that goes through now and the triangulation, um, you, you're not looking at the basic data sets that we used to work with. Everything now, you've got your workforce, your finance, your risk, your infection control, your quality, everything like that all churns through that central point. Um, and the BI team is sort of that that hub where it all flows through. And I think as, as definitely as Chris said, it's getting to the point where it's too much to manage for a team of sort of you know humans to just to just process it and that's where artificial intelligence is going to be the next big thing in the next five to ten years being able to make them connections based on a set of logic and rules that that we'll determine they'll be able to sort of pull those things together and do the triangulations that that you know one person in the head sort of thing so it is a really exciting time it's you know seeing this the place of change of the last five to ten years it's very exciting to see where we're going to be at in the next five to ten years Thank you so much. And Jason, we'll come over to you. Yeah, and I, I think again on, uh, I was really interested to to hear the views on the, the journeys. And um, I think over the last uh, few years, I mean, just one example of things coming in with, say, using statistical process controls. So actually getting into some real analysis of the data rather than, um, I'm sure, Michael, from the performance side, you know, just putting up rag ratings and, Oh, something's changed, so we really need to worry about it rather than using some of the science through SBC to say, yeah, something's changed, but it's natural variation, so don't worry about it. You know, look for um, uh, the outliers or the consistent outliers, and that's where uh, we need to focus our minds. Um, I think, Chris, absolutely going from looking backwards uh, to looking at current data and then um, the challenges of forecasting. And I saw a lot of that during. COVID, won't say too much because that will come on to Michael's next question, I think. Um, but looking at, you know, where are we going and how do we manage the, the risks and resourcing, et cetera, uh, as we look forward. So I think, uh, you know, we're starting to see data science, data scientists as, as roles coming into the conversation. So hopefully we'll see a shift there. And uh, uh, going back to all this data we will have and AI, 
Um, I think with my logical brain, uh, I think we spent the last God knows how many years, 30, 40 years talking about structured data. And now we're talking about AI looking at unstructured data. Now, I'm not I'm not sure my brain can cope with that. Um, so that that will be an interesting journey over the uh, the the next three to five years, as Michael says. Perfect. And is there anything else from that, Chris, that you wanted to to go over? Anything else you wanted to add on on your point? And just it's really interesting hearing everybody's feedback because obviously we've all been in different organisations in different places, but we've had a lot of the same experiences. And and yeah, you know, when I came into the the trust um, the NHS from university. It was it was a bit of a shock, I think, seeing everyone working in Excel and wondering why nobody was using things like SQL at that point. And, and to see that change and, and where it's going now is, is, is really, really interesting. And we've got such a wealth of data that something like machine learning will be, you know, completely perfect for it. As, as Jason just said, you know, the, the fact that unstructured data can be fed through something like that to give real insight towards the, the future will really help to give more intelligent led decisions and, and things like that. So yeah, very excited to see where we're going. I'm glad that we're all kind of on the same page. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, we'll come to you, Jason. Yeah, just think with the, the spreadsheet, the spreadsheets, Chris, and uh, yeah, I can uh, think back over my many years and see the different points where uh, SQL and data warehousing has been introduced and the impact, but there's still a lot of spreadsheets out there. And uh, I would, I, perhaps thinking of um, you know areas like finance that still seem to live on multiple spreadsheets. It's a big culture shift that we've got to go through, isn't it, to, to get people on to um, you know, the new technologies. Perfect. And we'll come over to you, Michael. I, I think just uh, you know, just to move on from one of the points that, that Chris raised that the the skills that are required by some of the, the these teams are very different now so you know your basic analyst skills it's not just you know can you can you do this in excel it's can you write area sql um so there's there's real workforce issues to think about as this pace of change over the next five to ten years and making sure that um you know that there's people out there who do have these skills who they are learning them and even within the trust it's making sure that um the, we've got in-house training for people to do as well as so know within my team uh, we had when we went through our PAS replacement about five years ago we took that as an opportunity to start teaching SQL within our team there was two or three of us who knew it and we sort of made sure that you know we could spread those skills out and um, throughout the rest of the analysts and now we have you know even our um, sort of band three band four analysts will start to do a bit of SQL just to make sure that they've you know they've got them skills in their locker because they are so vital for doing this and you know it's basically a core trait of an analyst now you know, can you do this in Excel can you do this in SQL so um, there's really important changes in you know the workforce that are going to happen over the next five to ten years and you know it's probably going to be the fact that in five ten years do our programming to get a basic job in a team or something like that so it's going to be a quite quite scary from a from a training and uh, workforce point of view going forward thanks michael uh, chris hey so i just yeah I, I completely agree that knowledge transfer and the skilling up of, of staff is so important um as you say that the skills required now are just quite vast and um we, we want to make sure that you're keeping 
they're people that you've got that you know you you they're really good within your team and not losing them to, to you know go off maybe to the private sector or something like that once they've been skilled up so I think it is really important that as you start to use different pieces of software or you need different skills that you, you do that internal training as much as possible and you, you got that retention then as well for, for um, the staff and hopefully you know as, as things grow and change and you have to restructure to accommodate the new roles that you require like data scientists as you said Jason then you know, potentially you can get some of that in-house there's lots of stuff around like apprenticeships and stuff available to us at the moment as well which can help to skill up some of the staff that you've currently got to some of those newer roles so you know it, it, it is great but as you say really essential kind of um thing to, to to think about when you're thinking about the future of, of our kind of teams thanks guys yeah jason yeah just on the i, I think both great points around the sort of workforce planning and then the retention and I think Chris uh, you mentioned the commercial sector a couple of times so yeah as we um, get more up to date in the, the NHS and closer to uh, what uh, the commercial sector is doing um, that means we're skilling people up uh, that will be attractive to the commercial sector or you know how do we make the NHS attractive to to bring people in to to our sector um, so yeah we're, we're all fighting for the the same resource out there Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, really, it's really interesting, especially from my point to, to listen in and everything. But I think that will lead nicely onto your point, Michael. So we wanted to talk about the role of performance and business intelligence and how that's been in response to COVID. Um, so if you just want to talk a little bit about that first. Hey, yeah, I think uh, the past two years has been um, obviously life changing for a lot of people and especially in in our sort of field of work and what what strikes me the most is that it's now completely common to turn the news on and then for have graphs charts everything like that um even you know you go on social media and you're going through your facebook feed and there's people you went to school with who couldn't add two and two up and they're having in-depth conversations about covid forecasts and projections i think um healthcare bi has really touched everyone over the last I always find it amazing to think how hard it is to recruit. Everyone's sort of an analyst these days, so um, there must be loads of people out there desperate to get into the industry. But I think from from my own experience, um, it was it was obviously thrust on us very quickly. You know the the need what we did, and um, it was amazing all at once how many stakeholders were suddenly you know crying out for information of uh, going back to sort of March, April 2020. Um, everything from the sort of the, the frontline staff who needed to know, you know, who were the COVID patients, who weren't COVID patients. Um, infection control had a massive issues. You know, we're trying to track patients through the hospital, looking for, you know, who were contacts if you were in the same bed next to someone who turned positive, everything like that. Um, as well as that, there was the executives, the managers, um, and then sort of like even workforce, you know, the staff sicknesses, what wards were, you know, looking at losing staff and everything like that. So there was people crying out for information in um, that we just sort of had to correlate and coordinate. And within our trust, we, we came up with sort of some very intuitive ideas of how to do that. Uh, we developed um, an oxygen dashboard, which showed how much the oxygen consumption at ward and bay level to make sure that um, that wasn't, you know, overrunning. Um, 
and even then from an external perspective the amount of sit reps and stuff that we got thrust on us that were you know done seven days a week and the covid sit reps which you know we're still doing to this day has several hundred data points on it that has to be completed on a daily basis um and then you've got the discharge sit reps um, and everything like that um the the volume of data which has been processed around this you know sort of one incident has been amazing and off the back of it i think the some of the solutions that have been um put together on you know at the trust level and the national level have been have been brilliant i mean the, the national dashboards which everyone uses i think are um, are really good um and you can really you know see what the benefits of the information that we're providing which isn't necessarily true with a lot of stuff you don't really see the outputs but being able to go onto the dashboard and see see that information being turned around is really good as some of you touched about before it's um with the forecasting i think um as we went into the second and third waves last year there was um a lot of responsibility put on business intelligence teams to you know there was managers crying out to us to say you know how many covid patients are we going to have you know next week the week after how many wards do i need to flip to covid and, and stuff like that and um one of the things we managed to do in our trust um sort of this well it was sort of just before christmas last year as we were heading into that that january wave was we we managed to do a really accurate covid forecast we we sort of pinpointed to in a few days how many covid patients we were going to have for our peak um and then then to see it come down and that helped with the escalating wards and patient flow as we moved into the winter pressures as well um but over over the couple of years as covid has changed um, we have seen a different change in requirements um the, the last wave we've just been through omicron um there was hardly any patients that we to our oxygen requirements so the, the use of that aspect of data sort of shifted to the infection control because it was a lot more you know transmissible and as soon as you hit one patient was turning positive on a ward you had all the patients in the adjoining bays were suddenly contacts and then it was monitoring them so um i think that aspect has changed massively um but i think yeah i think as goes back to my initial point i think it's really put into the public view the role of business intelligence in healthcare and how important it is to have them you know at, at the different levels it does so at a trust level at a regional level at a national level um, and in the importance of what being recorded in um you know patient care and, and and how management respond to things as well so thanks thank you so much um yeah jason you've raised the hand yeah, I, I think I'd echo all of that, uh, Michael. Um, and uh, you know, for me, seeing decision making being based on data uh, on a daily basis, and yeah, you know, multiple times during the the day, and um, uh, the, the impact then that had so on data quality. Chris was talking about earlier. So, uh, you know, if data is used and you don't believe the data people then were going away and resolving those data quality issues understanding and, and you know infection prevention and control you're quite right was a key area there how do we make sure the data is accurate so the decisions we're making which were critical on uh, availability of beds and staff um yeah was, was fundamental um and uh, yeah getting all of that data real time leading into the the forecasting i had a similar experience with the the forecasting last year when you could see the 
the COVID wave coming and trying to forecast right when are we going to hit peak and actually if we go beyond that peak we've just we've run out of beds so what will we do um uh, and I think you say the the pressure so with the sit reps etc I think it's got to drive us more towards that data's just got to be a byproduct of what we do. The fact that we have to put in systems and get people to record additional data and add to the the burden. Uh, it's just, yeah, it, it was circumstance we had to do it. Um, people have done it really well, but uh, yeah, it's it's got to be a byproduct of the day job, not uh, added on top of the day job for those people. Thanks, Jason. And we'll come over to you, Chris. Yeah, again, just to say 100% agree. I think um, obviously there was so much involved across you know, the, the whole NHS as a whole to, to deliver everything that needed to be done to meet the needs of the pandemic. And I think it did really put a spotlight on kind of what BI is and not just more publicly, but even sometimes like within your own trust with specific stakeholders to actually get a more of an understanding of what you do and what you need to do to, to deliver something that might seem simple if you don't understand the complexities of how to do it. I think um, one thing that the pandemic really showed around the NHS as well is just that when times are challenging, innovation really does kind of blossom, I suppose, because um, outside of you know the BI team where I work and stuff, the things that I've seen, not just in our trust, but just from a, as, a, as a patient within the NHS as well, um, I know how hard it's been to kind of drive digital transformations around things like telehealth and video conferencing in healthcare. You know, there's been a lot of resistance from different areas at, at times that it's not maybe suitable. And I think when it became one of the only options, it really kind of had to have everything put at it. I mean, even the fact that we're, we're now talking as we are over Teams, that was two years ago, doing that something we could have realistically been doing. You know, networks were bolstered. Um, lots of things were put in to deliver these digital transformation programs and now things like you know the use of apps for like booking your GP appointments and your prescriptions and your e-prescribed and being sent off to your, your pharmacy it's all become commonplace and although like I know the video conferencing and things for, for healthcare won't stay for everything as, as widely as it was during the, the heat of the, the middle of the pandemic I think it's really changed the way that we interact with kind of the service users that we have now where there's not a need for face-to-face -face, you can now set up teleconferencing and video calling and stuff like that in a way that just wouldn't you wouldn't have even thought would have been happening now two years ago so it's just crazy how much um of a drive that the pandemic has been towards like innovation and things like that i, I think it, it really just blow my mind and it's put us in a different place now as you said michael for, for what's possible over the next five years so, you know, it has been obviously truly horrific and a horrible time, but it, it has had some positive drivers and things like innovation with, with, with things like this. So it, it is, um, yeah, it's, it's really weird to, to kind of see that perspective of it when you think on it like that. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, Michael, you've raised your hand. Yeah, I think uh, Chris is just picked up on a really key point there and I think it's it's innovation and I think innovation's um, been uh, one of the key drivers in in our response over the last couple of years it's it's having those key individuals in your teams who you know who can come up with these ideas and solutions to problems 
and, and then as well as that it's the managers um sort of you know allowing them to do it and supporting them to do it um you know it's getting together as a team saying this is the problem you know what what ideas can we come up with to resolve it um and seeing some fantastic work come out of you know all different trusts and that of the approaches they've taken to to solve some of these problems i think has been great um, as well as that you know some of the national tools that have helped and the development of different technologies that support these innovative ideas um, you know as as chris said um, you know a couple of years ago teams didn't really exist and and now we we sort of run our businesses across teams and stuff like that and the use of apps and and different things coming in to record data um, but yeah, I think I think it has, as I said, you know, as Chris said, as as horrible as it's been the last two years, um, it has really put a spotlight on some of the brilliant work that's been doing and sort of the innovative ways that people have worked throughout it to to, to solve some problems. So, positives to take from it that we need to drive forward over the next few years and keep it keep it going. I love it. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, Jason. <laughs> Yeah, just thinking about the the innovation and how we uh, um, can collaborate and share some of that. I, mean, I think we saw a lot of collaboration during COVID because we're all faced with similar challenges. So, you know, there, there were calls to help going out. You know, how do I do something with um, the vaccination data? You know, what are you doing with the you know, oxygen you mentioned earlier? How do we manage that? So people sharing lots of good ideas. Um, but uh, yeah, let's. Uh, we should maximise that. I think as uh, as an NHS and find uh, good processes for for sharing those good ideas and getting them rapidly out to to other organisations. Perfect. Thank you so much. Is that everything um, that you wanted from from that point, Michael? Is there anything else you'd want to add? No, no. I think that's it's, uh, it's been a it's a really really nice discussion that we've just had about it. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect stuff. Well, that covers all of our questions. Um, it's great to see that we still kept going nearly for the full hour, even though um, sadly we were missing um, Patricia. It just shows that um, we did have great conversations and everything. So um, I just wanted to say again, um, thank you again. Is there anything else anyone wanted to add? Um, any final points or anything? Yeah, Jason. Uh, well, just uh, no, thank you. It's been uh, really interesting and I, I, I feel like we should have chosen to disagree on something. There's uh, <laughs> a, a, a lot of agreement on everything, lots of uh, uh, shared experience and uh, uh, be useful to, to have the different perspectives on that. So really productive. 100%, thank you. Yeah, Chris? It was just again to say thank you. It was, was really, really useful and really nice to, to speak to you guys and to um, to get those different perspectives and as you say it was all very um polite and positive but i think that in itself is a really positive thing so yeah thank you for the opportunity thanks definitely thank you yeah michael uh, yeah just just to say thanks for, for the guys for such a good discussion on it and i think um you know we've come together to have these discussions just sort of uh, carries on something which has actually become more prolific over COVID. It is, you know, separate trusts getting together to share ideas, to share experiences, to, to help each other out, um, which is something I've definitely experienced in the Cheshire and Merseyside area. So it's it's really good to, you know, to engage with peers and speak, chat things through and, and help each other out. Perfect. Well, I'm really glad that you've all had such a good experience. It's exactly why we do it. Um, and working across Cheshire and Merseyside, I, I want to keep doing it for all of all the trusts involved. So I'm really glad 
that you've all managed to get some insight and it's added some value as well. Um, so that's that's really great to hear. So thank you again for all taking part and everything like that.